Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. I'm just so grateful that I get the chance to uh, share the story of Jesus with you this morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but I believe that it's the story of Jesus uh, that transforms the human heart. There, there is no story like the story of Jesus, even as you heard Kimberly sing. It's that story. That's the story that changes the trajectory of humanity forever. Amen. I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody who's been changed by the story of Jesus, but if I am, we can celebrate that. I want to invite you to stand this morning. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is a prophet of the old, and uh, he was around about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. I want to read to you what he says. This is in the message. He says this, who believes what we've heard and seen. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. How many know that that we need to send this to Hollywood for how they portray Jesus? There's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone away our own way, and God has piled all our sin, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in the grave of a rich man. This is 700 years before Jesus walks the scene. Even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true, still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad that he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous. 
as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and did not flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of the many. That's you and I. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this Good Friday. This is a day that we are reminded that we have relationship with you only because you sent your son to die and take on our sins. And so we thank you for it. We are forever grateful for it. And in the next couple moments, Lord, as we dive into your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to lean in, to press into what you have to say to us. We know that you're already here, but enter into the deepest crevices of our hearts and do a work that only you can be responsible for. Change us, God. Let us not remain the same when we leave from here. We give you honor and we give you glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Praise God. Elroy, you're good. You can come back. You can come back when I close. Otherwise, I'm going to start crying as you play. It's going to be awkward. Can we give it up for Elroy? Yeah. Praise God. Um, how many of you have ever encountered an unexpected thing? An unexpected thing. An unexpected thing. Where, where either it was an unexpected experience, something happened to you that you did not expect to happen, or somebody said something to you that just totally threw you off because you didn't expect it at all. I have a nephew. He's four years old. He, he's a funny guy because he says unexpected things to me all the time, and they still manage to get me off guard. I was with him just the other day. We're spending the day together. We're playing. We're having a good time. And out of nowhere, he says to me, he's four years old. He says to me, aren't you tired of having the same haircut? <laughs> four years old. He says, he says, aren't you tired of having the same haircut? Don't you think it's time you get a new haircut? And I was, it was so unexpected. I was so caught off guard, I didn't know what to say. So I just laughed, and he's confused because he doesn't understand. And I'm like, if only you knew, it's the only haircut I've got, bro. And so, so I got no other haircut, and so I was totally thrown off guard. I had no idea what to do, but it was just a good and, and funny moment. In that moment, I was thrown off guard because I figured, even though he's four years old, I figured he would know that I didn't choose this. You know what I'm saying? I didn't choose this, right? And, and, and I, think, I think with things that catch us, catch us off guard, I think they catch us off guard because it often comes from not knowing what we ought to know. And so we're caught off guard. We are surprised. It's, it's something that is unexpected. And I think when it relates to God, there are often things that are unexpected about him that catch us off guard because you and I don't know what we ought to know. See, Israel is promised a Messiah, one who would come and free them from captivity, one who would free them from oppression, one that would allow them to be a nation on their own once again, one who would allow the blessing of God to flow through Israel, and Israel would stand as an example to all the nations in the world. They awaited this Messiah. 
But 700 years before the Messiah shows up, before Jesus shows up on the scene, Isaiah prophesies something very unexpected. Something you and I wouldn't expect a Messiah to live out. And that this Messiah would be the Lamb of God that is sacrificed for the sins of this world. I want to talk to you for the next couple minutes on the topic of the way of the Lamb. The way of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but Jesus, as the Lamb of God, has a way about him. Have you noticed? Jesus does things you and I wouldn't do. Jesus says things you and I wouldn't expect to hear, and there's a way about Jesus. So I just want to share a couple of things surrounding the topic and the conversation of the way of the Lamb. Now, there's two ways to look at it. One is that the way of the Lamb is the, the ways and the works of Jesus, and the other is that the way of the Lamb is the path of Jesus, the path of the Lamb. And so Isaiah prophesied this 700 years ago of something so unexpected. And, and then the New Testament starts off with this other prophet, John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? And John the Baptist exists to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And John the Baptist comes on the scene, and the first time he sees Jesus as an adult, he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, and so John bridges the gap between the Old Testament, and he, and he brings forward what was said 700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah, and he says, here's the one. This is the one who is going to take away the Lamb of God. The first thing I want us to talk about is that the way of the Lamb, the way of the Lamb reveals the unexpected king. The way of the Lamb reveals the unexpected king. The reality is, Jesus is a king that they did not expect. When Jesus shows up on the scene, many people miss him. This is, we're talking about God. God shows up in the form of a man, and people look at him in the eyes and are not able to recognize that this is God. This is God. This is God. Why? Because he came in a way that they did not expect he was the unexpected king. In other words, Jesus will come in such a way that it would be possible for us to miss him. And many people did. Because they thought, they would, they thought that he would come in accordance to their agendas and not his. And anytime we think that God is only going to move in accordance to our own agendas, we will miss him. We will miss God every time we think he's going to move according to our agendas and not his. But God is sovereign. God is in control. God is a God that does not need to rely on man in order to get things done. He is God all by himself. And so it's his agendas, his ways that we make room for. He's the unexpected king. He's the unexpected king. He's the king that they didn't want. But he's the king that God gave them. He's the king that they didn't want, but he's the king they got. They wanted a warrior. Mighty, strong. God gave them a servant. They wanted a militant leader to drive out Rome. God sends a lamb. 
They wanted a king who would occupy a throne. God sends a king nailed to a cross. The unexpected king. What kind of king is this? Born amongst animals and died amongst criminals. What kind of king is this? The unexpected king. Now, oftentimes, the reason we don't understand the solution that God provides is because we don't properly understand the problem God is trying to solve. Hello. Oftentimes we miss the solution because we don't properly understand the problem. And the reality is the way Jesus comes, he comes in such a fashion because he wants us to see that the problem is not on the outside, but the problem is on the inside. That the real problem that he is trying to solve is the problem of the human heart. It's the human heart that's the problem. And so that brings us to point number two, that the way of the lamb uncovers the human heart. But it also recovers the human heart. It uncovers the human heart, meaning it exposes the condition of humanity's heart. It exposes the human condition, but it also provides a solution for it. So Isaiah says, we thought, we thought he brought this on his own, on himself. And he says, but it, that wasn't the case. It was our sin that he is carrying on the cross. It's our sin that he is carrying on the cross. It was for our sake that God crushed him. It was for our sake that he was being punished. And so the way of the lamb exposes the human condition. See, when you and I look at the cross, we see a horrifying death, a horrifying death. And the reason it makes this moment all the more horrifying is because we know Jesus is sinless. Jesus is completely perfect. Jesus does not deserve to be up there amongst criminals dying a criminal's death. But when we look at that, we have to ask the question, why? And as we begin to ask the question, why, we'll, we'll get to the point where when we look at the darkness of the cross, what will be revealed to us is the darkness of our own heart. Because we will realize that it was because of our sin, because of the condition of our heart, that he is up there dying a criminal's death. And so the point of the darkness of the cross, the point of the horrifying crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is so that when you would see that, your human heart would be exposed. And you would realize that it's the darkness in here that caused the darkness out there. Because the Bible says he became sin. And so the darkness of our human condition was laid upon Jesus. Laid upon Jesus. And so the lamb exposes the human heart. Now again, he's the unexpected king. And so he enters into an area. He enters into a society. He enters into a culture that doesn't see that. He enters into a society that thinks that they, they can fool God who sees their heart with their behaviors. That if I act right, I will be in the right with God. And by the way, his disciples missed this too. Hello? 
His disciples missed this too because they're waiting. They're waiting for him to take over. They're waiting for him. You know, when are we going to gather people? When are we going to form the army? When are we going to form a mighty allegiance and take over Rome or take, take, throw out Rome and take back Israel? And so they don't understand that it's the heart that Jesus is after. And so over and over and over again, Jesus says things that move beyond the condition of simply behavior modification and he gets to our heart. That's why he has, to say to, he has to say to people things like, man, you worship God with your lips. But because your heart is far from him, your worship is in vain. And so the primary thing I'm here to deal with is not your behavior, not the external things that everyone sees, but it's the internal, the heart that no one else sees, but God sees it all. So when we look at the cross, we see the darkness of our own heart. We see our sin, our iniquities, our failures. You know, what's interesting about, is about, about humanity is, I want you to realize this, humanity has all the information it possibly needs to get as close as to perfection as they possibly can. I mean, you think about all the information available to humanity. We can't be perfect, but we can get pretty close. Simply based on all the information that is available to us. Dieting, health, knowledge, information, wisdom, literature, everything, all the information. But as close as that would allow us to get, we'll never get there because we, though, have, though we have the information to get there, we don't have the capacity to because of the condition of our own heart. And so when we look at the cross, we see the darkness of humanity. We see the darkness of the human heart. Now, so the, the way of the lamb exposes, it uncovers the condition of the heart. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, what we should see is, man, my sin did that. And yet at the same time, what we should see is that there is hope for my heart too. That it recovers my heart. It buys back my heart. Doesn't the Bible say that? That we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We have been bought back. We have been recovered. And so the cross heals the human heart. Now Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, he makes a big deal out of this. He says, this is the cross. The cross is what I'm going to be fixated on. The cross is going to be what I focus on. It's Jesus and him crucified that I'm going to preach. It's Jesus and him crucified that I'm going to focus on. So much so that there's this writing in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You could read it on your own time where he begins to talk about how the Jews were a people who, see, who sought after a sign. Miracles, signs, wonders. And that the Greeks were people who sought after wisdom, knowledge, information, getting wise. And he says that as they sought signs and they sought wisdom, God provided something completely different. And he says, whatever signs and wisdom can do, they cannot do what the preaching of the cross can do. It's the preaching of the cross that can do what human wisdom and signs cannot do. What is that? It is the power of God to save. It's the preaching of the cross that has the power to save the human heart. So yes, it's the preaching of the cross, cross that uncovers, unveils, and exposes the human heart for what it is, and that it is sinful, has fallen short of the glory of God, but it's the same preaching that heals that heart and says there's so much more that God has for you, and so the Spirit of God comes in and turns your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. 
It's not wisdom. It's not signs or miracles. It's the preaching of the cross. You could have a recovered body and still have an unregenerated heart. It's the preaching of the cross that regenerates your heart. It's the preaching of the cross that gives you life. We see this even when Jesus is on the cross. You remember that Jesus is in the middle cross and there's two thieves on either side of him. One thief sees him and he mocks. The other thief sees him and asks for mercy. The one thief sees him and says, save yourself. The other thief sees him and says, save me. Two people looking at the same thing, ending up with different results. One who sees the crucified Christ and his heart is softened. The other who sees the crucified Christ and his heart is hardened. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, if you look at the cross, there's going to be two types of people. Those who are drawing near to salvation. When they look at the cross, they will see the power of God. But those who are perishing, they will look at the cross and see foolishness. But the Bible says God used the foolish to shame the wise, that it was in the foolishness of God that the power of God is displayed. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, the cross is the end of your kingdom. The cross is the end of your kingdom. It's the end of your kingdom. Because when you look at his kingdom and you compare it to yours, something should happen within you as you see the power of God and your heart is softened. You'll realize that your kingdom is decaying. Your kingdom will not last forever, but it's his kingdom that is everlasting. It's his kingdom that has the power to change you. It's his kingdom that can actually satisfy your soul. Come on, if we're going to clap, we got to clap because this is... Y'all got to help me a little bit. And so it's his kingdom. And so what do we do? We have to decide. We have to make a decision. Are we going to continue to live in our ways, our kingdom? Or will we accept the way of the lamb? Accept the way of the lamb. The lamb who takes away our sin. Now, in that decision-making process, what I don't want you to think about is that it's all about performance, because it's not. Where were the disciples when Jesus got arrested? Right? They scattered. They scattered. Feeling powerless, seeing their Messiah arrested, again, unexpected. Feeling powerless. Able to do nothing. What do they do? They scatter. They run away. And the only disciple that we have record of being at the cross is the disciple John. John, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that fascinating? The one disciple that we know as the disciple who Jesus loved, is the only one at the cross. Where are the others? Where, where is Peter? Where, where is the loudest and the bravest of the bunch? Where is the self-proclaimed leader of the group? Where is the one who said, Master, I will never deny you. I'll never forsake you. The loudest of the bunch, and he's nowhere to be found. I wonder 
If the truth of the matter is that it's not always the loudest people in our lives who are the most loyal. The only one we see there is John, the disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, 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 I want you to, I want you to think about why that's important. The one Jesus loved is the only one at the cross. Could it be, church, that those who remain closest to Jesus are not those boasting of their own commitment to him, but those who are perpetually receiving his love for themselves? It's those who receive from God that wound up being the closest to him. Not those boasting of their own commitment. There's nothing there except. No disciples are there except for John, whom the disciple that Jesus loved. And so the cross exposes the human condition and our heart. But guess what? It can also heal the condition of our heart. Now, humanity doesn't understand this, does it? If you look at the world... The world has a problem with their own understanding and their own awareness of their own heart. They're like my four-year-old nephew who doesn't understand things the way he should yet. And so what happens with the world? The world tries to come up with solutions that continue to make the problems worse because they don't understand the true problem. Yeah, have, you, have you ever thought about every, every year, every generation, the world comes up with some new solution? Hello? This is the solution for humanity. This is what's going to allow us to progress and move forward as a society. This is what's going to allow us to be a nation that is going to advance and all of this. And, 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 and if you notice, the current hope for humanity is in humanity. It's in humanity. It's in what humanity can produce. It's in what humanity can create. It's all self-focused. And so we think we can help ourselves. But the truth is, when the cross is laid before you, what you realize is you are helpless. That's why God had to send his son to take on your sin and die on your behalf because you had nothing to offer. And so our, the current hope for humanity is in humanity. And if you notice, we are perpetually moving toward trying to solve the question or answer the question, how does humanity become God? All these dysfunctional longings within the human heart. Because the human heart is dysfunctional. And what we keep trying to do is create a world that will satisfy our dysfunctions rather than stand before the Savior and embrace him, who, who alone has the power to heal the dysfunction in our heart. So dysfunctional longings is, if you look at it, you know, doesn't our set look amazing, by the way? Yeah. Right? Um, some people came, non-believers, non-Christians. They're setting up, you know, the drapery and all of that, and I'm having a conversation with this guy who's not a Christian. We begin to have conversations. I begin to tell him, yeah, I'm from Pakistan. He begins to tell me, oh, I dated a Pakistani once, you know, da, 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 da. And uh, he's, we're asking, talking about, okay, how does Christianity get there and all of this? And I begin to tell him the story of how Christianity grew, you know, got there, though it's a minority. It still was able to spread with uh, and through missionaries and through uh, prayer and, and all of the rest. And we begin to talk. And then there's a pause. They're figuring out how to do the rest of it. And then I'm standing there watching them do their work, sipping my coffee. And he says to me, you know... 
Our world really needs Jesus. I didn't probe him. I didn't spark the conversation. I didn't ask him what he thought about Jesus. Out of his own mouth, he turns to me and says, you know, the world really needs Jesus. And I, again, unexpected. I didn't know what to say. I just laughed. I said, yeah, man, the world really does. And we begin to talk about where the world is heading and all the dysfunction we keep seeing in the world. And he says to me, you know, since COVID, we've seen certain things accelerate. And he doesn't, he doesn't mention it, but then he says to me, you know what I'm talking about? I go, I know exactly what you're talking about, bro. And all we see is the world painting humanity and society and culture in dysfunction. Because humanity thinks that we have the power to become God. Humanity thinks that, that we can get to the point where we can solve our, all our issues all on our own. Now, here's the question, right? Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is. He's God in the flesh. And we have more proof for Jesus' uh, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection than we have for a lot of earthly leaders. In case no one has told you. Don't be misled. There is more proof for Jesus' existence than many previous presidents of America. I want you to know that. But then the question we have to ask is, if Jesus is God, what is God doing on a cross? See, that's what humanity cannot answer. That's what humanity is ashamed of. That's what humanity is scared to get close to. The question is, what is God doing on the cross? And what humanity doesn't realize is that the problems we keep trying to solve on our own were solved 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. God has already, pro God has already brought the solution to humanity's heart. We keep trying to become God. We forgot that 2,000 years ago, God became man and dealt with the issues of our human heart. But humanity is so fickle because we rather congratulate ourselves than serve a God who is sovereign and powerful and in control. And so the reason humanity keeps coming up with the wrong solutions is because they don't understand the real problem. By the way, Israel had this problem too. If you study the Old Testament, Israel has this dilemma as well. That's why they keep serving themselves. They keep serving Babylonian gods. They keep going and trying to do different things because they don't understand the real problem. So they keep trying to come up with the wrong solutions. And that's why they say to God, God, we need an earthly king. And God says, no, you don't. You don't need an earthly king. You need me. No, we need an earthly king. No, you don't. You need a God who you can worship. You don't need an idol before you. You don't need a man before you who is imperfect, who will fail. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Though rulers can rise up, they will constantly and consistently fail. They will go up and they will go down. Their faithfulness is unsustainable. But there is a God, church, who became man to show and prove to humanity that it is his faithfulness that is consistent. It is his faithfulness that will stand the test of time. You don't need an earthly king. See, 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 an earthly king can tell you what to do, but a transcendent king can change who you are. Did you hear what I said? An earthly king can tell you what to do, but a transcendent one can change who you are. And maybe that's why 
We'd rather an earthly king. Because we don't want to be changed. We don't want to be changed. And that's why there are false religions that are still growing today. Because it's easier to throw alms at a God than to give him your heart. Elroy, you can come back. Because <laughs> I got to close. Isaiah says he took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We get healed. And so, the way of the lamb reveals the unexpected king. The way of the lamb uncovers the condition of the heart, but it also recovers the condition of the heart. And my last point is that the way of the lamb allows us to get closer than we're allowed to get. The way of the lamb makes a way for you, church, to get closer than you thought you were allowed. Closer than you thought you were allowed. When we took a trip to Israel a couple years ago, pre-COVID, there was this moment during our trip where we went to a museum. I'd never been to a museum before, so I was very excited. It's like, all right, cool, museum, never been to one, this, this ought to be fun, and it was incredible. You saw the, saw the coolest of things. And then one of the things that I don't know, because I've never been to a museum before, is that you're actually not supposed to touch the art. <laughs> all right, you're like, common sense. I was like, this is cool, can I touch it? And then I touch, I touch something and the alarm begins to go off, and some of the people who are on the trip with us, they probably are just finding out that I was the cause of that alarm going off. The alarm begins to go off, and the alarm is there to signify that, hey, you're too close. You're closer than you're allowed to be. Take a couple steps back, because you're not allowed to be this close. This is precious art. Church, how many know God is precious? God is holy. God is sinless. And we are not, because of the condition of our heart, allowed to get close. But the way of the Lamb makes a way for us to get closer than we are allowed. Remember the paralytic story of the four friends who carry the paralytic? Right? They're at the door. The door is full of crowd, a crowd of people. That's as close as they could possibly get. And what do they do? They tear the roof off to get right to Jesus, to get closer than they're allowed. There's a moment, there's a moment in the story in the, in the Gospels of a woman who has a blood condition. She's not allowed to be in public. She's not allowed to be amongst the people. She's not allowed where the people are. Because of her condition, she is an outcast. 
And until she is healed, until she is recovered, she's not welcome back to society. She's not welcome back in close proximity with people who are well and healthy. But she heard of a man who has the power to change a human heart, who has the power to heal, the power to forgive, who is God in the flesh. And so she puts everything on the line. Even though she's not allowed to get that close, she crawls on her hands and knees just to touch the hem of his garment. And here's what she would have expected. As Jesus turned around, according to the law, he was required to stone her. But when Jesus turns around, he offers her mercy. And he heals her of her condition. And she got closer than she was allowed to get. You heard last week of Palm Sunday. Right after Palm Sunday, Jesus clears the temple. The money changers, he throws them all out. And what happens next? The blind and the lame get closer than they're allowed to get. They enter the temple and they're healed. The Bible says that as Jesus is hanging on there on the cross and he breathes his last breath. And he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. The Bible says that the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. Why? Because it signifies that this is a job that only God can be responsible for. And what happens? The veil being torn is significant. Why is it significant? Because the temple represented the place where there was life. But now it no longer represents the place there was life because life is in the blood of Jesus. Life is on the cross. Life is in the Savior. Life is in the God-man named Christ. And in the temple, there was different areas of access. Not everyone could go anywhere they wanted. And so the general public was allowed to be in a particular place. And those who served in the temple were allowed to be in another place. And then once a year, the priest was allowed to go beyond the veil to the holies of holies. And even for him, there was requirements. Blood had to be involved. An animal had to be sacrificed. Someone had to pay for the sin of humanity. But the veil is torn. The veil is torn. The veil is torn, and it's as if Jesus is saying, hanging there on the cross, come, come closer than you ever thought you were allowed to come. The access has been opened. The way has been made. I have become your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in me. So come. Come closer than you're allowed to come. It was a question that God asked me a little while ago. He said, he said, he said to me, what if, what if, what if you could come closer to me than you ever thought you were allowed to come? And you go, well, how does that make sense? What kind of question is that? I want you to think about the things you tell yourself. Whether you're somebody who, who is observing Jesus from afar, and you're saying, okay, you know, this God thing is kind of cool. And 
sure Jesus existed, but you haven't totally surrendered to him because you're telling yourself that this is as far as I'm gonna go. I'm not allowed to get any closer. Or maybe you're an individual who just worships God on the weekends. And you say, that's as close as I'm allowed to get because I know the condition of my heart. I know the kind of stuff that I get involved in during weekends. And that's why sometimes some of you skip even the weekend worship experience because you know what you did during the week. And so there's all these things that we begin to tell ourselves, all these roadblocks that we put in front of ourselves saying, we're not allowed to get any closer because I'm a sinful person. But that's the point of the cross. Yes, you're a sinful person. Yes, you have nothing good to offer to God. That's why God sent his son as a propitiation for your sin, meaning that he would step in for you. And I'm sorry, I apologize on behalf of all the preachers who have lied to you and told you that you have something to offer to God. You don't. You don't. That's why God sent his son. He offered himself. And we receive what he offered. By faith. By faith. By faith, not by works, not by performance. We don't earn it, we don't warn it, we don't deserve it, we don't do anything to accumulate it. It is given freely and received freely. That's the gospel message. That's why we can boast of the cross, because I did nothing to get here. I did nothing to get here. Nothing. Just want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes for a moment. The Holy Spirit is in this room and he's doing a work. And some of you, you know God, but you know that God is persuading your heart. And you know you're supposed to move beyond the restrictions and the barriers you've put up in your own mind, in your own heart, saying you can't get any closer. If that's you, I want to pray for you. You know God, but you you refuse to get closer. But if you're saying in your heart, you feel the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to move closer than you thought you were allowed. If that's you, just put up your hand. I want to pray for you. God, I want to move closer than I thought I was allowed. I want to move closer than I thought I was allowed. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, but I do want to give an opportunity now. There's some of you here who do not have a relationship with Jesus. You have not freely accepted his work, his ways. And the Bible says that everything that stands in the gap between you and God was all put on Jesus on the cross so that you can come freely. What about my sin? Jesus paid for it. What about my judgment? It was put on Jesus. What about my future? It's with him and in him. And if that's you, you know you need to take that step of faith to receive the free gift of forgiveness that is only found in Jesus. Just as all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if that's you, just would you raise up your hand? You say, that's me. I need to take that step of faith. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. We're going to get a package to you. I do want to pray for you. Come on, if that's you, just raise up your hand. Don't be shy. This is between you and God. You and God. You and God. Father, you see these hands. 
And I lift up these individuals to you and maybe even those who are watching this online, God. I thank you, God, that you are the persuader of the hearts of men and that you have allowed them to take a step of faith. And from this moment on, God, they shall know you as their God, as their Lord, as their Savior. And they shall be your forgiven son, your forgiven daughter, in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for the rest of us and those who, though we know you, want to desire to get closer. Persuade our hearts, move our feet, expand our faith. Let us wholly depend on you like never before to move closer than we ever thought we were allowed to get. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for watching. We really appreciate your time. Will you please like and subscribe so that you will get notifications? And by the way, your comments and your feedback are very important to us. Even sermon series and messages that you would like to hear about, please let us know. Drop us a line. We would love to incorporate that into our teaching and our preaching. We appreciate you and thank you.